Hey, it's Dan Hare, and welcome to Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. This is part two of my chat with Mark Jordan. And if you missed part one, you can check it out at linernotes.ca. Now let's pick up the conversation. You did the album Hole in the Wall, right, with the song Margarita on it? Yeah. Great song. Loved it. I hadn't heard it for years, and then I listened to it again. I thought, I really like this song, and Like a Wheel and Slipping Away. Super cool. So how did that album come about? Well, uh, um, so I was between deals. Uh, it was after my after I'd done um, uh, Blue Desert with Jay Graydon, and uh, and um, the the Japanese uh, love the LA writers, and uh, so I I think I'd had I think a Japanese artist had done one of my songs, but anyway. This label guy, uh, uh, and his label was called Sound Design Records in, in Tokyo, wanted to sign me, Patty Austin, and David Foster hmm. uh, to a record deal. And um, so they flew us to Japan and did all this, you know, whining and dining, and back we came, and and David, um, David and I wrote a couple songs uh, for that record, the sound design record. Um, uh, what was it called? I, I, um, she used to be my world, and a couple of other songs. And 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 David, so generous, you know. Yeah. And he came in and basically produced them. He he came in and played piano, and you know he just came in and. Did it for nothing. Yeah. Real wonderful. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, so that was a, basically a Japanese deal, the Hole in the Wall album. Yeah, that yeah. was a Japanese record. And and how much airplay did you get in in North America on that? Like Margarita, uh, Margarita, I had heard before. I'm not sure how much play it got. Well, Margarita got a lot of airplay. I, I, yeah. Um, you know, here and there. I mean, all over the world. Actually, it's funny. I. Uh, that wasn't even the single, but it was Margarita has gotten almost more airplay than any song I've recorded myself oh. over the years. It just keeps. It's catchy though. It's, it's, it's a catchy tune. Yeah. And it's, again, it's the, it's the flavor. It's the feel. I don't know. People don't overanalyze the songs. I think sometimes, right. But it, from the writer's perspective, you might think, oh, okay, it's another song that one that I wrote, but the flavor I guess again the production and and just the lyrics and the way that it it touches people. But when I listen, I listened to the whole album and that one jumped out. And like a wheel is is a little you know sort of up tempo and and edgier than the other ones, but really good. Right. And then uh, slipping away got got redone by Juice Newton. Is that right? Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. That's right. Yeah. She did a version. I don't think I ever heard it, but oh really? And you don't get to meet these people, right? They just play your song and then you hear it and you go. <laughs> No, I never met. I never met Juice Newton. Huh. I met. Um, oh, I never met um, uh, Diana Ross. But I, I talked to her on the phone a lot. Okay. But I met her in person, and uh, I met. Uh, oh, I met. I guess I met most of the other people eventually. Yeah. And Rod Stewart over the years, I've. God, that's. It's been, I'm still writing for him. Oh, nice. He just recorded a song of mine a couple of days ago. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, well, that that's a good example of a song that, I mean, of course, that was a huge, rhythm of my heart was huge, but it was, you know, he made it huger than it probably would have been, right? Would you agree with that? Well, I, I totally agree that a hit song, it's not, I mean, I wouldn't say there's no such thing as a hit song, but it, it, it's more than the song that has to happen. Yeah. It's uh, the story uh, of Rhythm of My Heart is interesting because it illustrates it. And I got, it was sent to, the the demo was sent to England, London in about 1983 or four on a cassette. And the, and the head of Warner Chapel Music in London heard it. And he thought this would be a great song for Rod Stewart but not now because Rod was doing, you know, making records like, do you, do you think I'm sexy? And right. He was in the eighties phase, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so this guy, Rob Dickens, who was the head of, of Warner Chapel said, timing is not right. So he put the cassette on the shelf of his favorite cassettes and then he rod wanted to get out of that kind of genre of music he wanted to make more serious records again and he came to rob dickens he said i want to make a, a real record I want to get back to you know more meaningful songs and god bless him rob pulled out that cassette played it for rod and and the rest and is history, had. right? So, yeah. but it was the right time in Rod's career, yeah. for that song, and it was huge. But you know so, I mean? was that adapted from a Celtic classic? Is that what I heard? That that, that melody was adapted from? Uh... No, but my father, my classically trained father, also loved maritime folk music. Yeah, and he and he played that stuff. You know, he had a lot of those folkways records and yeah sea shanty records and, and so i knew the mode i knew the the, the the that style i knew that yeah cold yeah and uh so i that's you know i, I remember writing it and thinking oh man I, I thought it was a hit song when i was writing it well yeah the flavor is fantastic i mean yeah it's so celtic and cool and and I'm glad it got to Rod because uh, he was the perfect guy to do it. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. That's a, that's a nice story. It's nice when those things happen. But but you're right. You know, people yeah. talk about writing a hit song, but I think there's lots of potential hit songs that that never see the light of day. And you may even have some oh, other ones yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. It has to be the right. Everything has to line up. It has to be the yeah. right time for the record at radio. It has to be the right time in the artist's career. It has to be. Yeah. So then going through your career in the eighties, you did the, the, uh, talking through pictures and then catch the moon. Super cool. Like it's got the Asia kind of harmonies and the strings. And I think there's a fretless bass in there. Is that, did I hear a fretless bass? You, you yeah. like that? Yeah. 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 That was. So how did that come about? Well, there was a guy named Paul de Villiers, uh, a South African guy who was friends with Mutt Lang, who's also South African. And I, I, 
or he was either a friend of Mutt or he was absolutely saw how brilliant Mutt was. Yeah. And kind of studied him. And then he came to Toronto. He moved to Toronto, Paul Duvillier. Mutt and him both grew up in South Africa. But he came here and he was my sound guy. He was the most brilliant sound guy in Canada. Hmm. It was unbelievable. He lives out west now in the mountains somewhere. Oh. So, um, Paul, uh, anyway, he did some demos with me, and my manager in L.A. heard them, and he went, holy shit. He said, uh, Mr. Mister, who had just been signed to RCA, Mr. Mister are looking for a producer. Mm -hmm. well, I, I think De Villiers would be perfect for them. And he was. Yeah. And he was. He had all those, uh, you know, Kyrie and all those big hits. Fantastic. Yeah, I can hear that influence for sure. I was thinking Asia, but yeah, that's very similar to the layered harmonies and the the, yeah. the, the synth patches and, and just that really, really wide, full sound. Right? Yeah, beautiful. He was an amazing engineer, amazing producer. Yeah. And then, he, and then uh, you know, he, he worked on my record. Um, um, and did a great job on that too. And, and, uh, and that was also signed by RCA as well. So that, that was an RCA project. And, and yeah. how, how did you, what was, what was the biggest song off that album? Was it Catch the Moon? Biggest song off that Yeah. You know, probably. Yeah. Probably Catch the Moon. I, I, I haven't really done a, you know, an analysis of it, but, but that record, uh, it's an interesting record. That's for sure. Yeah. I listened to the whole thing. It was super cool. Super cool. <laughs> and we created every sound on it too. With, with yeah. Primitive samplers and. Well, really... Yeah, that's right. That would have been pre, well, just the beginning yeah. of that sort of way of, of recording and now now it's it's nothing to sample things and manipulate the samples but back then it was a big deal right wild yeah and then you went on to do uh well you did reckless valentine with waiting for a miracle right what was that that was in the early 90s and i guess and i think i won a juno uh, for reckless valentine yeah. didn't i uh yeah but that's okay. when i um Anyway, I did two records for, I did Talking Through Pictures and, and a record called Cow, C-O-W. Yeah, yep, C-O-W. Conserve Our yeah. World. So I did that with uh, yep. Kim Bullard, who is Elton John's uh, synth player. And he he and I did that record together. And, and then I moved back to Canada and, and we did... Uh, Reckless Valentine. Okay. So you moved, yeah, you were living in LA, but you wanted to come back to Canada with your family and just kind of. Yeah, I met live. Amy, you know, Amy Skye is my yeah. wife. And uh, yeah. we met down there. And then uh, when we had our first child, uh, we wanted to be around our family again. So. Okay. Yeah. You know how that is. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So the other question I had for you was about just about songwriting was, so you wrote Fall from Grace for Amanda Marshall. Is that right? Well, I wrote it for my, I wrote it for myself and right. I used to do it live. And Amanda was 
in the audience one night and she said, Oh, I love that song. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you got to work with her a little bit. It's, yeah. She's so impressive to me. Like I always wondered to myself why, why she's not a superstar, like of, of the stature of, of, of the real well, high level. Prohibited from recording for a long time. Oh, well, why was that? Well, she was, uh, as I understand it, and I, I hope I'm representing this correctly, but I, yeah. I she had a, she was in a, a hell of a long lawsuit with her management. Oh. And oh, gee. she could not actually record. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry to hear that because, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of hers and I, so strong. And I, I kept thinking, well, well, where's the music? Where's more music? And then I saw that you had written Fall from Grace and that was a fantastic song. And she's got such a powerful voice. And I thought, yeah. So I just thought I'd ask you about that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a tragic because uh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Well, on that note, I am going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back with Mark Jordan. Check out songs from today's artists and other Canadian music makers of the 60s through the 80s on Dusty Discs Radio. Each Tuesday and Thursday, it's nothing but Canadian oldies. You'll hear songs you know, others you've forgotten, and maybe a tune or two you've never heard. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and make it a favorite. Let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're talking to Mark Jordan today about his career and the music he's written and the things he's been involved in. Really interesting conversation. Welcome back, everybody. So music careers are a series of ups and downs. What, what, do, what do you consider the best time of your career, you know, the, the peak of your career? Well... It's been a series of peaks, you know, and and alleys. Yeah. Uh, it's up and down. I would be hard pressed to say which each each era had its, you know, great. Yeah, listen. I when I joined that cover band, I loved going out when I was a young guy and going out and playing all these bars, you know, and that was so lot of fun. Yeah, and. Uh, we thought we were rock stars and uh you know it was just crazy and moving to LA was a was a trip and being signed to Warner's was a trip I yeah. mean and uh just hanging out in in California in the center of the music business when it was the center of the music business yeah. and when the music business was rich you know because they were basically plastic salesmen yeah they sold CDs and and they made a lot of money and so there was a lot of money around and that was fun yeah uh creatively i i have three or three maybe or two or three wonderful collaborators that i that i write songs with and 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 i just love that and that's always anytime i i write a great song it's uh, i'm i'm a happy yeah. camper yeah, good. Well, and, and as I said at the outset, you know, you've been consistently busy and you've uh, produced a lot over the years. So it, it makes sense that you would have, you know, everyone has peaks and valleys, I suppose, but but pressing forward and yeah. keeping looking forward to the next thing. So did you do a lot of touring and traveling? Did you did, do you like that? Do you like the touring and traveling part of it and the live shows? I mean, how many live shows do you do? I, I love them. Uh, I, I never used to like it, but I. The whole time I was in LA, I didn't play live once, and I was there for almost twenty years. Oh, I didn't. Oh wow, nothing. 
So you didn't have a band band, right? You had a studio band, right? Yeah. Yeah, we all just did it in the studio, you know. We were just studio rats. And that was its own great time, you know. But, uh, but you know, when I go to a concert, I'm always thinking, I'm always analyzing, and I'm always yeah. sort of critiquing performances. And um, so I, I sort of thought <laughs> that audiences were just there to sort of critique you. And when I realized uh, that was not the case, that, that audiences are there to listen to music they love. Yeah. And when I, when I, when I understood that, I, I began to love me, um, performing again, you know, and, uh, and uh, it's become a, a, it's a great joy. And, and, and I love meeting the, the audiences and, and I, I love singing on stage. I do. I love it now. Oh, good. Well, that's, yeah, no, that's good to hear. I mean, it's, it's it's funny because there's a real dichotomy there, right? Like a band like Steely Dan, who's essentially a studio band, and then they go out to recreate that live, and then and probably the same experience yourself. You you take what you did on the vinyl in those days, and then you go out and try to produce, reproduce that live in some semblance, and it's it's a different animal, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, when, when Steely go out and do it, uh, they... they uh, they do it very well now, yeah. uh, but early on, they they weren't sure how they were going to, because their studio craft is so deep, you know, yeah. and they weren't sure how they were going to pull it off live. And in, in fact, they were, they, there was a massive tour uh, planned when I was making Mannequin. Yeah. And, and Donald is very insecure about his singing. Although I think he's a great singer, he 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 doesn't think he's a good singer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had me. I, I I was they they asked me and Tim Schmidt and uh, uh, I think it was Tata Vega uh, to to do backgrounds for the tour. And uh, then Donald got so scared he he bailed on it. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, he's such a He's such a cool singer. I I just love his voice, you know. But he's all bent out of shape. Yeah, and those guys were obsessed with the studio, right? So all the a lot of those nuances and those subtleties get lost in the live performance. You're just trying to create recreate the vibe so people can feel good live from what they listen to on the record. But boy, it's sure not the same thing. No, but I think they wanted to do it note for note. I think you yeah. know that's that was their their yeah. <laughs> obsession. And I think it was. <laughs> So how many live shows do you do now in a year? Like uh, barring this year, of course, with the shutdown, but do you do do lots of live shows? Do you still tour or no? Well, I have uh, my own band. Yeah. And I probably do 20 dates a year with that. And um, and I I sing with um, a a songwriter band uh, with Ian Thomas, Murray McLaughlin, and Cindy Church. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's just like a folk band, and uh, yeah, and it it just started with one show, and we were only going to do the one show, and 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 that was twenty years ago. So we do about an I do another twenty or thirty with them, so about fifty 
three shows a year, which nice. is enough. Yeah, good for you. No, for that, that's good. I'm always curious about that because some people love it. I mean, like like the Stones, they said they just love to tour, right? They love the live shows, so they do the studio thing. But yeah. you know, other people go back and forth. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that you uh, came to appreciate the the live experience more than because I think people some people can get lost in the studio and that becomes their world. And I find having played live my whole life that the studio is kind of is the artificial environment for me. That's, that's where I don't feel real comfortable. I feel more comfortable doing live shows because that's what we always did when we were kids. We grew up singing and playing and people, yeah. you know, were enjoying it. So. But the, you know, the audience uh, uh, um, are silent partners, you know, in, in a lot yeah. of ways. You can tell whether what you've written, you can tell in 12 bars if it's, reaching people touching their soul right as we as we like to say so you've rubbed shoulders with lots of people and you've worked with lots of people do you have any close friends in the business like do you stay in touch with people or is it sort of like you work together and then you kind of move on and you live in canada now yeah well it's funny when you work with people you think you're just working with them yeah but you're you're not just working with them you're learning about them and you're sharing a lot of stuff yeah, and uh, I I didn't really understand that when I moved back home. I there were a lot of people I didn't say goodbye to. Yeah, and I realized that I missed them. Yeah, and uh, they're not people I necessarily socialized with, but there's a lot of socializing subliminally going on when you're working. You know what I'm saying? You really know. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And I missed them. And I, so I, then I got in touch with uh, a lot of people that, that uh, I worked with and, and uh, I'm, I'm close to a number of people in LA still. And we, we talk on, you know, all the time. Well, that's good to hear. I know what I like to do at Christmas time is, is the time that I just sort of regroup and I go through my, my Rolodex, if I can use that uh, yeah. antiquated term, but I go through my Rolodex and I, and I just call people that I haven't spoken to for a while and just say, Hey, I was thinking about you and good for you. Know, hope you're doing well. And you know, cause I think that some people, you, you're right. You, you bond with them in a special way and you have a sort of an understanding of one another. You maybe have had a couple heart to heart talks and, yeah. and you kind of get that person. Right. And then you fall away and you don't see them for years, but you still have that same feeling. And, and then when you do talk to them, you pick up the conversation right where you left off. Absolutely. Uh, no, that's, that's right. My, my cousin said that one time too. You, you, you could not see the guy for 20 years and you could go sit in his kitchen like you've been there every day for the last 20 years. Yeah. Because they're just that kind of people, right? So no, I was curious about that because it, you know, the music business is full of a lot of uh, rascals and uh, yeah. people that are undesirables, obviously. Yeah. But uh, so what did you sacrifice for your success that you achieved? Did you sacrifice anything that, you know, you dropped out of film school and I guess that you, you would consider that a good sacrifice. Is there anything else that you sacrificed for the success that you achieved? And do you think that was worth it? Well, I, I sacrificed a lot of my emotional life. Maybe I, I didn't get married till very late. Yeah. I, uh, I was a bit reclusive. I was a bit, also a bit wild. I was, all, uh, and um, at times, and uh, I didn't really pay attention to that. Yeah, well, you know, my 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 soul, I guess. 
for a long time. I just, I just buried my head and I worked my ass off. Yeah. <laughs> and I, listen, I wouldn't have, cha- I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. But I know, uh, you know, I missed things and and probably screwed up a lot of things. But uh, we all do that in life. Yeah, I suppose that's right. And and uh, the other thing too, lots of people have said, if you want to be successful, you got to focus like a laser beam at the expense of everything else. I mean, you look at someone like like David Foster. I think he's been married five times now. But you know, even in his book, he said like he was so obsessed with what he was doing that he had no time for anything else. His family, his kids, his his life, nothing. I mean, you're working twelve to sixteen hour days, seven days a week, and going from project to project just doesn't allow for anything else, right? No. And then he came in and helped me with my record, you know, yeah. for nothing. And go. I'll tell you a funny story. And, and, and because David, that's, that's ex- what David just said there is exactly so true. And uh, David was out, was on the, out on the floor playing the piano with the band. And uh, he, he didn't seem to be able to hear very well or something. And the engineer, I was in the control room, the engineer said, on the talk back, he said, David, what do you need? Meaning, do you need more drums or do you need more bass or do you need less guitar or blah, blah, blah. And David looked into the gla- into the control room and he said it as a joke, but I knew he was serious. And he said, what do I need? He said, an empire. <laughs> and that was David, you know, he, he's so uh, generous and giving and, uh, but he's, he was so laser focused on becoming successful. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, Shania in her book said the same of Mott Lang too, just obsessed with making things the way they need to be. So, so looking back, you wouldn't change much in your career. You you think it was, I always like to ask about the managers, the bandmates, the studios, the producers, did, did anyone ever take advantage of you or mistreat you? Did you ever feel like you were, you were taken advantage of in the business? No, I never did. I never felt taken advantage of. I, you know, whatever successes and whatever failures I had were of my own doing. I, I, by and large, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I'm curious about that because you, well, you came back a a little bit later, but you know, reading John Fogarty's book, for example, you know, some of those people back then were so taken advantage of. I mean, I didn't even realize, but with, with Fogarty's deal, I mean, he sold, he sold and signed away the rights to songs he hadn't even written yet. He promised 160 songs to his publisher. And he said, by the time he'd written those five albums that were enormously successful, he was at like 37. So I didn't realize you could even do that. (laughs) <laughs> but nowadays, I mean, so you didn't get caught up in that sort of a thing where you were completely taken advantage of. And, Never. But lots of guys were, man. I had good management and uh, always. and uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, good, good for you because <laughs> a lot of people, and I've spoken to lots of them who they didn't look after the business properly and they were either taken advantage of by unscrupulous people or they didn't have managers who were smart enough to put um, things in the contracts. You know, it's there's a famous story with Audrey Meadows and the, remember the honeymooners, right? And she said her brother yeah. was a was a tax accountant and a, I think a lawyer, tax accountant. But the one clause that he put in her contract was she got residuals off those shows, and she said nobody else oh. on those shows got residuals, but he wrote that clause in and they signed it. So she got paid for decades wow. for that stuff, whereas everybody oh, else didn't. Yeah. What an wow. interesting. Uh, 
tidbit that you'd never think of, but th there was only a handful of those shows, I think 39 or something, and they, they got played forever. So tell me something that, that about you that people wouldn't know. I, I see that you like painting, which is, is always impressive to me because I couldn't draw a stick man if my life depended on it. I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be dead. But so you, you got other hobbies and passions, and I guess painting is one of them. Yes, but I, uh, I, I call it flat music yeah. because it's, as I mentioned before, I'm dyslexic big time, and. Um, I, I can't really learn that well. No. I do most, I figure stuff out. Even, you know, learning to read music was, was a nightmare for me. Um, I just, I, I think of painting like I do music. It's, you know, music has color and balance and depth and depth of field and, you know, shape and, no. you know, design. And, and so does painting. So it, it, it's just the same part of my brain. Yeah. Interesting. And any other hobbies or passions that you have that are outside of music, or are you just still focused on, on the music and writing and playing? Well, I mean, I, I have a place uh, on a lake up north of uh, Toronto and in Muskoka and yeah. at the Passion. Nice. The, uh, yeah. You know, the natural world and and i also love uh horses they're a big uh oh nice where i used to own horses but i, I don't anymore but i i've always loved uh, horses yeah and interesting that's a yeah I, I was born in guelph so i'm familiar with that area oh. but i i moved out here with my parents many years ago but uh i am familiar with that area and of course muskoka and uh, and the lakes and the cottages and lots of lots of my family members and and yeah horses are a real uh, life commitment and it's just an expensive yeah. very expensive life commitment so i understand a little that. too expensive yeah. for daddy <laughs> yeah well there you go so then then just i'd like to finish by just by asking you what, what what you have going on now do you have a bucket list what's your bucket list you got things you still want to do and well, i'm working on, i'm working on rod stewart's new record yeah and uh, he, he just sent me a song that he had recorded of mine. And, yeah, oh, good. And, and uh, he, he's got three songs on hold. And oh, nice. So you're going to get a song or two on that album? I'm sure of it. Oh, yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. So he's been a supporter for many years, and that's he's a lovely man. And, yeah. Um, you know, just uh, I just like, I, I just can't wait to get back playing live yeah once this uh, whole shutdown thing is over and hopefully soon fingers crossed that it'll be over soon and then you've got sounds like you're just going to carry on where you left off and of course you got time at home now to write and, and carry on with things so you're not totally uh inactive at this point right no i'm pounding it every day yeah no that's good well well good well and i really appreciate you uh, taking the time you got a really impressive catalog and and uh, resume and I'm really honored to have the opportunity to to talk to you and, and get some insights from you about, about the person too. I wanted to know about Mark as well. So it's a pleasure for me too. I really appreciate that. So many thanks to my guest, Mark Jordan, for being part of the liner notes podcast and sharing some insights from his extraordinary career. More information is available at markjordan.com. I highly recommend that you check that out and see what he's been up to and, and go through some of the stuff he's done in the past. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like some notifications and other insider information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. 
We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio at DustyDiscsRadio.com Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.